Hello, everyone. Welcome to Brooklyn's. I'm Steve Clark, and we're back. I'll tell you what, it feels really weird being up here. So we're amongst friends tonight, so uh, it's good to see you after 15 months of hibernation. We're not quite back to our full capacity, but small steps. But thank you for being here this evening, and thank you to all our new online visitors uh, via YouTube tonight. So we're going out worldwide. So our guest this evening, we were joking, this is the third time, Peter, we've tried to get you here. Uh, one was about the original book, High Performance, um, and we kind of got stopped from doing that. Then we booked you for our annual dinner. That got cancelled, and I thought, right, bloody hell, we're going to try and get him back. And here we are, third time lucky. Um, I can't think of a better guest, actually, to kickstart the year off, and I sincerely mean that. Um, will you please give a very warm Brooklyn's welcome to Peter Grimsdale. Thank, thank you. Thanks so much, and, and thanks for coming. This is, uh, well, it's my first outing. I'm sure it's your first outing, and it's the first time I actually got up and spoken about this book, and... I realise that's you know it's something of a baptism of fire here because you know I'm talking to a very informed audience in a in a very hallowed place. Um, so bear with me as I take you on this journey through how this book, Racing in the Dark, um, came to be. Um, I think the thing about me and cars and writing about cars is I I like to try and think of these cars in a landscape because. I guess my mission in writing books, this is the second car book I've written, car related book I've written, is, is to try and appeal to people, not just the core enthusiasts like us, <laughs> but the people who are, I say, were passingly interested, you know, who, who like cars, but like social history in equal measure. And for me, I think the interest, the really interesting bit is to get in behind the cars and go sort of who were these people? Who were the men and women behind them that made them special? Um, who not only designed them, but drove them, but bought them? And, and to try and put them, in a, put them in a time and in a place. And I think, I think great cars say so much about the time they came from. Um, so that's a bit of a mission for me. And the other thing is that I spent most of my working life in television of some kind or another, mostly factual television. And along the way, I've done quite a bit of oral history. And for me, one of the most exciting things about oral history was going and meeting people who had you know, done something significant, possibly in a factory, possibly in, in a war or whatever, and giving them the sense that you, know, you don't have to be Winston Churchill to have a place in history. Everybody's got a place in history. Everybody's a participant in history. And I found that very... In libel, it was great for them and it was great for me. And so I suppose I take that kind of enthusiasm and, uh, and apply, it, apply it to the world of motor cars. Um, I, did a, I did a piece quite recently for, um, for motorsport. Um, they did a special 60th anniversary of the E-Type. Uh, and they said, could you, could you do sort of introduce it? And um, you know, like, put... put put the E-type into some kind of context. I thought, fine, I think I could do it. I'm sure I know that story. And the great thing about these stories is you think you know something about them. When you start looking into them, you realize how little you know. And I mean, one thing I found was that, you know, that the E-type was launched at the Geneva show in March 1961. And I always think of the, you know, that the, the E-type as a kind of quintessential example of the swinging 60s, don't you? But the thing was, it was two years ahead of the Beatles. The, the March 1961, when the E-Type came out, the Beatles were just getting their first gig in the Cavern Club. Mary Quant's miniskirt was two years out. You know, the E-Type was like before everything else. It just jump-started the whole thing. And I, I painted this picture of my own experience. The first time I ever saw an E-Type, I was six. It was Newport Pagnell Services, I think. And we were queuing up in the rain and there was a, in between a comma cob and a Vauxhall Wyvern, there was this primrose missile. And like it had just fallen to earth, you know, and it, there it was with its three windscreen wipers. 
and it had white wool tyres. I remember father thinking, white wool tyres, it's a very bad idea, they're going to get very dirty, you know, I was just thinking, this is the 60s, you know, I was only six, but I was thinking, something's happening here, you know, and I guess that's the thing that I applied to Bentley, because those, the, 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 that, that, again, the experience starts early. I mean, it starts with, it starts with this, and I'm sure that, I don't know whether the cameras can pick it up, but this is a, this is a model of a Bentley 3-litre, but it's not any old Bentley 3-litre. It's got a 3 on the radiator, but it's called old number 7. And when I got that, I was 10 years old, I said, what's all that about? You know, well, what it's all about is the story of an incredible car, an incredible feat of endurance, and a kind of creation myth of Bentley, if you like. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those stories that just sort of live, like, like last night's football, you know, maybe, that, you know, it, will, it, it lives forever. The story of the car that crashed once, or went off the road, 1926, came back the following year, crashed, and then went on to win the race. I mean, who doesn't like a story like that? And the reason why I say that with a certain amount of confidence is because how I came to seriously think about pitching this book to my publishers was I was at the, a wonderful event called the Chalk Valley History Festival. And I wasn't there, it was nothing to do with cars. I was there actually to talk about television. And I was standing with my agent and my then book editor, because I was writing thrillers at the time, and another, uh, another person, a woman who was a, another thriller writer who, um, and we were, in, we were in a big marquee in the, in the, um, in, in, at the Chalk Valley, which was the sort of green room for the speakers. And they decked it out with sort of artifacts and there was lovely old grandfather clocks and all kinds of things, great big Chesterfields and a three litre Bentley. And so I'm standing there with this group of people who are seriously uninterested in cars. And I said, you know, car like that crashed in the 1927 crashed and then went on to win and I told them a little bit about it they were just there with their cups and saucers going ah you know it's just like they wanted and I just thought oh that's one of those stories you know that maybe needs to be told to a, to a wider audience so my my plan originally was to write a book called old number seven and use the frame of the race through which to tell, tell the Bentley story. Um, but inevitably, it, it kind of got, got a bit bigger than that. Um, the other thing that was, I've got another, I've got another artifact to show you. Um, I've been at this a while because um, I've got here, I've got an exercise book from Rowlinson School, Sheffield. Um, so I'm in year two of this, or whatever they call years then, and that was about 1967. And there's an essay in here I came across, which I'd forgotten all about. And um, it's, uh, where is it? I'll find it in a second. Um, it's about the 1927 Le Mans. And it turns out I'd written a school essay about it. And there's a very telling thing that I got a B for it. I was quite pleased with that. A well-organized account, and you succeed in linking an account of the important race with a more general history of the firm. Well, that was a big tick. Said, but the trouble with this story is that you draw too much on books, not enough on your personal experience. <laughs> well, he had a point. Um, but, of course, I'm sorry, spooling forward now. But, of course, I've just written this book in lockdown. <laughs> not going to libraries, not interviewing anybody, not sifting through any archive that I could lay my hands on. So it's quite a lot of it is taken, is taken from books because the thing about the Bentley story is it's pretty well told. I mean, I'm sure everybody in the room probably here today and lots of people listening and watching out, out there probably know the story quite well. Um, so having kind of realized that this story should be taken to a wider audience, I then had to think about, well, okay, so what am I going to do that's going to kind of make this special? And actually trying to make this special is not hard because it's a very special story. But in a way, the more I delved into it, I realized it, it was a gift. Um, and it also had to be bigger 
the, than the 1927 Le Mans. I um, started off with this idea of the race of the, of, of the 1927 Le Mans, and then starting with the crash, or starting with the moment when W. O. Bentley is standing in the pits, and there's silence, and none of the cars are coming, none of them, not one. And that awful moment, what, a, what an awful moment for him, because he'd stood in those pits the year before as two cars had failed to finish, and the year before, when two cars had failed to finish. And his business had been on the rocks. He'd just been, re he'd been rescued by a financier who I'll come on to. But just imagine that moment. And then out of the gloom and the dusk comes this one headlight coming towards you. And you think, kind of, what am I doing here? That's the start. That's the, that's the start of the, of the narrative of the book. <clears throat> and then I go back to look into the story of Bentley himself and the Bentley boys and the Bentley girls and also the story of Le Mans because you can't really tell the story of Bentley and Le Mans without telling the story of Le Mans. So uh, that's, that's where I set up. And that obviously quite quickly, the, the task got quite, got quite complicated. Um, the other thing that changed the story as well was Wolf Bernardo. I mean, I knew a bit about Wolf Bernardo but once I'd read up a bit more on him, I just felt like he was this person who just like burst into the story and, and almost obliterated everything else because he is such an amazing character. So I don't know how much of you know the background of Wolf Bernardo. He was the son of a diamond heir. He was the heir to a diamond fortune um, that had been made by his father who had gone off to South Africa from East London in, in the 19th century with nothing but a box of cigars to sell and came back uh, from South Africa, one of, the, one of the richest men in Britain, if not possibly the richest man. But he never made it back because he either jumped or was pushed overboard, uh, leaving his uh, mother, his, uh, his wife, Fanny, and three children behind of which um, Bernardo was the youngest. Anyway, nothing ever got in Bernardo's way. Obviously, it did help being rather wealthy. In fact, somebody said he didn't have so much a silver spoon in his mouth, but a diamond-encrusted spoon. But Bernardo was not just some rich boy, not some kind of P.G. Woodhouse character. You name it, he did it. He, got him, he went to Charterhouse, he excelled there. He went to Trinity, he was a rower, he was a boxer. He kept wicket for Surrey. And of course, like all that generation, the minute the war was declared, off he went. And um, by the end of the war, he survived, like, like the others, um, but was a changed man in lots of ways. And the war, I go into the First World War in some detail in this book, um, because it's so interesting and so important, and it affects all the key participants in so many different ways. And Bernardo, Bernardo, one of the things Bernardo did after the war was he, um, he nursed his mate, Bernard Rubin, back to health. Bernard Rubin, I can't remember exactly what happened to him during the war. He couldn't walk for 18 months. He was pretty badly injured. Bernardo just sort of had him, had him there in his flat and looked after him and made sure that they had a good time. Such a good time that W.O. Bentley believed that wrote that he thought that Bernardo was spending something like £900 a week on entertainment, which works out at around £50,000 in today's money. So imagine what a character he was. Anyway, Bernardo descends on this story in, uh, just before the 1926 uh, race, 26-27, no, just before the 1926 race, because... W. Bentley and his brother, Horace H.M. Bentley, they're great at making cars, but they are terrible at building a business. And it's, it's almost gut-wrenching to read about that because they just did not have the first idea about the extent to which you have to... Building a company is about as hard and time-consuming and challenging as just building, as building the car. 
and they were never financially secure right from the start. They robbed their own bank accounts to pay the wages on some weekends. And their shareholders were a motley crew of difficult people who wanted to make a fast buck because the 20s was like the dot-com boom for the motor industry. And everybody thought they could get rich quick. And as a lot of you, I'm sure, here know, that that doesn't happen in the motor industry. You get, get poor very quickly, but not, very, not rich very quickly. So W.O. discussed it with his brother and um, his colleagues and decided to go and see Bernardo. And Bernardo basically said, OK, I will buy your company, but this is, these are my terms. I will be chairman. You will be chief engineer. Um, and um, that's how it's going to be, if you want it. Sort of take it or leave it. It was quite, it was quite tough. But I mean, wisely, they, they went for it. Because otherwise, the company would simply have ceased to exist. But having seen what happened in 1927, and I'll come back to the impact of that in a bit, Bernardo decided that he wanted to have a go at the Le Mans 24 hours. Now, he, he distinguished himself as a driver here. But as WO knew, it was another thing to do the 24 hours. You needed organization, strategy, discipline, all kinds of things. No idea, no idea whether Bernardo had this. And not only that, Bernardo was going to, um, co his co-driver was going to be Bernard Rubin. Two playboys in a motor car. Uh, so W.O. decided that it, well, he, with the other two cars, they entered three cars, two other cars would be with their tried and tested drivers, like Benjafield, for example, I'll come on to in a minute. Um, but those two cars retired during the race, and it was left to, ben to, to, to Bernardo and Rubin to try and finish the race. 1928 was um, one of the, there were many challenges to, to, to Le Mans in the 20s, most of them unforeseen, and a lot of them to do with the road surface. For some reason or other, just after the White House corner, 1928, a, a sort of trench had opened up, a shallow trench had opened up across the road, diagonally across the road, so that it meant that the cars hit the road, hit, the, <laughs> hit this sort of ditch, one wheel then the second, one wheel then the second. And there was a, a sort of metal fatigue set in on the cars that meant that the chassis started to flex. And the first thing they noticed was Bernardo's door flying open as he drove. And um, I've just got to keep going. What can you do? I'm, I, I'm going, to, going to shorten this, otherwise I could, I could talk about this race until midnight. But the upshot of it was what W.O. discovered to his surprise was that his playboy chairman was actually behind the wheel incredibly disciplined and very very willing to take orders from him and he kept the car at the exact speed not too fast not too slow you know and so on and so forth and they got to the end they got to the last lap and the radiator hose broke off on the last or just before the last lap spraying Bernardo with with water and obviously the engine was becoming red hot so he actually slowed down and stopped on the last lap to try and cool the engine down. Meanwhile, the, the Stutz, uh, the uh, French, uh, the, the Wayman entered Stutz, was not far behind. It was one of those Le Mans, very unusual with Le Mans, because so often it's a procession. It was a nail biter down to the wire. So having read about, having properly researched this story, I feel this, this has to be a bigger book. So old number seven became racing in the dark. And what I ended up doing was going through the whole story right up until the demise of Bentley Motors in 1931, which in its own way is as, gri is as gripping a story um, as the race itself. Now, I mentioned um, before that uh, I had this slight problem with it being locked down. Um, and so I was limited by some of the research I could do. But it was amazing what you could find on eBay on the internet, it was fantastic. And one of the things when I was going deep, deep down into the, uh, so, some of the uh, drivers, uh, you know, some, of the, some of the Bentley characters on the internet, I came across um, the fact that Benjafield, Dudley Benjafield, Harley Street bacteriologist and noted Bentley boy, had a very interesting war in 1918 he was um, um, with the Royal Army Medical Corps 
in Alexandria, Alexandria um, treating in a mobile laboratory gifted by the Wellcome Institute, the, oh, Joseph Wellcome, um, treating Allenby's army with the usual sorts of things that armies get, including, they didn't call it Spanish flu then, but it was Spanish flu. And Benjafield, in the, under the heat of the Alexandria sun, um, developed a vaccine to alleviate the more chronic sufferers of Spanish flu. Anyway, I thought that's pretty interesting. It's kind of resonant, given that you know, here we are in lockdown and writing this. So I, um, I persuaded a, uh, a friend of mine's son, who's a, she's a PhD, biochemist PhD, to, to just look into this for me. I kind of said, is this significant? So she, oh, I'll take it to you where I have a look. She came back about a week later. She said, this is pretty interesting, you know, because the last time Benji's paper that he wrote for the British Medical Journal about this in 1919, the last time it was quoted in a medical paper was 2003. Well, I thought, bugger me, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? But so typical of that generation that they never talked about their, they never talked about their achievements and they never talked about what they did in the war. His co-driver, Sammy Davis, famous to you all, there's an entire cabinet devoted to him downstairs. Sammy Davis, like everybody else, enlisted for the war and found himself in what the Royal Navy called, at the time, a landship. And this was basically an armored car or an armored truck. It was a, it was a, a three or five ton truck. With, an with solid tires, an enormous amount of armor plating on it, and a side you drop down with a big gun to fire off at Jerry. And they went off to Ypres in this. And as you can imagine, in the mud of Ypres, a solid tired, very heavy armored vehicle was not a very good idea. So they, were, they basically were stuck in this ruined village. Now, you may not know this, but um, on Sammy Davis's very interesting journey through his life. Amongst other things, he went to the Slade Art School. And that was before he decided he really wanted to do cars and went and started an apprenticeship with Daimler, before he decided he actually really wanted to write about, uh, draw cars and draw, uh, uh, draw, do technical drawings and then write about cars, so he went to Autocar. Um, but he, um, he found himself in this truck and he decided the best thing he could do was camouflage the truck. So he, he basically did a painting of ruined buildings, which he put in front of the truck in the hope that Jerry wouldn't notice them. <laughs> anyway, that's all by the by, because what did happen was that he was in the first Ypres campaign and was gassed. Not as badly as some people were, but was gassed. And so he went home. And when he got home, he found that uh, two of his brothers had died, his cousin and uncle his best friend, the carnage these guys experienced was just impossible to imagine. Especially that generation, because you know, Benjafield, Bentley, Davis, and the others, you know, they, these, were, these were affluent young men, you know, brought up in extreme comfort, um, with the certainties of Edwardian Britain offered them. And off they go, doing the right thing, into an environment, a scale of, a sort of industrial scale carnage, never, be seen, never seen before in the history of civilization. And, and the other thing was that they survived um, somewhat. You know, they survived in different forms. Anyway, just coming back to Benjafield for a second, I had an amazing stroke of luck because having discovered Benjafield's medical story, I then discovered Benjafield's grandson, Robert, who sadly can't be here tonight because He's still, uh, he, he, and, he and his wife are still um, very cautious about coming out because his wife's had a very, uh, very bad illness. But he, he has been my kind of guide and mentor through this book, um, much more than I expect. He's a very interesting guy who uh, remembers his grandfather well, but also remembers, you know, what a fine guy Dudley Benjafield was, but also what a terrible father he was to Robert's own father. Because like lots of men, who became fathers either during the war or immediately after the war, they had a very difficult time bonding with their children. And he was one of those characters. Um, and so there's a kind of, behind the sort of uproarious kind of hell for leather, you know, 
fast set experience that is it's tinged with this slight sense of just just this enormous this enormous thing hanging over hanging over them and, and defining a lot of what they did um, you may know that Sammy Davis is extremely prolific he wrote at least three memoirs of which I've read all of these and I've scoured them for references for his war experience and there's a line he said, oh, around, around about 1915, I had to, go into, had to go into hospital for 18 months. Um, had to sort myself out. I can't remember the exact expression. And basically, you know, he had, he had really serious shell shock. We probably call it PTSD today. Um, but they didn't talk about this because they'd all experienced it, something in some form or another, and, and, and it didn't do to talk about it. But it's a very telling thing that happens when, uh, when Davis goes back to ILIF publications. Um, to see about picking up his old job. And, and, and there are men sitting around the table who they have no idea. They're, they're men in their 50s. They have no idea what happened. No idea at all what happened in World War I. They have no sense of it at all. And, and he describes in about two sentences this kind of enormous gulf that had opened up between, between the generations. person who, the exception to all these people, all these bendy boys, in terms of what they wrote or said about this experience is obviously Sir Tim Birkin. And Birkin, uh, you may know, wrote, wrote a, uh, a sort of, well, it's not an autobiography, it's a sort of call to action. Full throttle, it's called. And it's addressed to all schoolboys. And the interesting thing about this book is that he talks really honestly about the war. He said, there's only one reason why I drive like I do, it's the war. I'm looking for that sense of excitement and danger. Anything could happen in the next seconds. And he's so honest about it. And it's almost kind of unnerving, you know, to read a man of that time talking so frankly about that kind of thing. But that's, that's kind of what drove him. So as you can see, I got pretty intensely involved, interested in these men. W.O. Bentley, um, I'm going to have to just pick out one example of why, why he is so amazing. But um, again, it's to do with the war. So Bentley had pioneered the use of the aluminium piston. And it's a really counterintuitive thing, I discovered, the aluminium piston, because aluminium melts at a lower temperature. So you'd think it would be mad to replace an iron or steel piston with an aluminium piston because it melts at a lower temperature. But because um, Bentley had had his apprenticeship in the engine sheds of the LNER in Doncaster, he knew a thing or two about hot metal and when different metals uh, melt and also how different metals conduct heat. And he knew or worked it out that aluminium actually was a better conductor of heat. So the advantages of the lightness and the conductivity of the aluminium in the piston outweighed by far the advantages of a steel or, a steel or iron piston, which would melt at a higher temperature, was much heavier. And this became the industry standard very rapidly. And Bentley pioneered it. He didn't invent it, but he pioneered it. And he took his aluminium piston to the Admiralty, who at that time there was two air forces. British had the Navy Air Force and the Royal Flying Corps. And never the train did meet until 1918, and some people are still sore about that. And he, he, the, 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 Navy, the Navy said, right, we'll put these in all our airplane engines. And Bentley found himself quite rapidly involved in trying to redesign some aircraft engines that kept seizing in the sky. And for him, making these, car, making these engines work was more than, you know, in a motor car, the engine stops, you pull to the side of the road. When the engine stops in the air, and you've no parachutes in those days, you're dead. And for him, it was profoundly important. Reliability and endurance were profoundly important. So in a way, he was building a car for the race that he he built a, he built a Bentley three liter in 1919. He built it for a race that had yet to start, the Le Mans race, because the Le Mans car race was all about endurance. And whereas, you know, the races, the races before the war were these kind of gladiatorial nationalistic races, the French Grand Prix of 1914, when the Germans blasted the Persians out of the way. It was, well, you know, that was a bad moment. Very few people clapped, or very few people, French people clapped. Um, but the interesting thing about the, the, the environment of Le Mans was that they were all in, in it together. And when the, 
when the White House crash happened and when the three-litre Bentley, the old number seven, uh, was, was finished first, everybody, everybody was so pleased. All the, everybody in the race was so pleased because somebody had got through. That sense of endurance was profound and it was a, it, it was a very, very different thing. It's not about, people think it's all about nationalism. It was very unnationalistic um, business, motor racing in the 1920s. Although it has to be said that the, by the end of the, the 1920s, the French organizers of Le Mans were getting a little bit weary of the, red car, of the green cars winning and winning. Um, W.O. Bentley, had a, he had a challenging time because he, he was very committed to his design. He, he, he loved his car very, very deeply. And he was, a very, he was a very tragic character in a way because having worked so hard, for, he married just before the war, he worked so hard for the Admiralty, ended up designing the rotor engine, engine, engine that went in the, um, the Sopwith Camel that eventually um, did for the Red Baron. But in December 1918, just after the armistice, his wife died of Spanish flu. And um, he remarried unhappily uh, through the 20s, ultimately married happily in the 30s. But he had that on his shoulders. He had this business on his shoulders. And yet he, he struggled on. And one of the most, I think, enduring things and powerful things for me is the relationship that he obviously had, which was really special, with his workforce. He was a man of few words. He was, couldn't, cel couldn't celebrate. Uh, and he, 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 when, when something went well, he just, he just had to shy away. He couldn't really, he couldn't really deal with it. And he, he, didn't, he didn't come over um, as exactly clubbable. But I think all the men who worked with him, with him would have walked over hot coals. And one of the characters I like best in this story, I could talk all night about them, is a mechanic called Leslie Pennell. And Pennell joined Bentley and Bentley in 1915. This was the, this was the uh, car sales um, company that uh, W.O. and his brother set up, sell the French DFP car. Um, Pennell joins Bentley and, and Bentley in 1915, and as a, as a school leave, he's 15, 16, and you know, amongst other things, he's sweeping the floor in the showroom, and up on the wall is a picture of Bentley, W.O., in the 1912, I think it is, um, TT, uh, coming down the mountain, scarves flying, with his riding mechanic beside him. And Pennell describes, looking up at this as he's sweeping and thinking, ah, you know, just imagine what that must be like. 1922, Pennell is sitting beside W.O. in the three-litre Bentley, in the TT. And um, he, uh, you know, just never looked back. You know, the, ben, ben, the people who went into Bentley came out, you know, supercharged, shall we say. And there's no better example of this than another of the early Bentley boys, the real Bentley boys, as they like to be known, because the mechanics consider themselves to be the real Bentley boys, is Wally Hassan. And Wally Hassan, another school leaver, joined Bentley as a sort of apprentice. But let's think about what happened to Wally Hassan at the end of the 1920s. So he, uh, he finished up, he worked all the way through, you know, did everything at the races and every, you name it, he did it. After Bentley Motors was wound up, he worked a little bit with Bernardo. They did a Bernardo Hassan, you know, one of the richest men in Britain, a school leaver who you know, was an apprentice. Bernardo Hassan on the side of the car. Hassan then works for ERA, and then he works for Jaguar, helps design the XK engine, and then he moves to Coventry Climax and designs the engine that takes Lotus and Cooper to the Formula One Championship. And then he comes back to Jaguar and works on the V12 which in turn goes to Le Mans and wins in, I think it is 1990. So Wally Hassan, thanks to Bentley, is involved in motorsport in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm not sure there's anybody else in the whole of the motor industry who can you know, quite make that claim. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna read you a couple of bits um, 
uh, just to give you a sort of flavor of, of what I've been trying to get at um, in this book. Um, one of the the, 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 the the bad guy in this book is Henry Royce. Um, for various reasons. But one of the things that happened, of course, Bentley, Bentley spooked Rolls-Royce, the Rolls-Royce, the, the people in Derby, quite early on. And um, one of the problems that um, Claude, Claude Johnson, who, who was the sort of managing director of uh, Rolls-Royce in the, in the 20s, um, was rather annoyed to find some of the younger engineers were rather impressed with the three-litre Bentley. Um, and also this coincided with a time when Rolls-Royce decided it had to kind of go down market slightly and build a smaller car, and they'd come up with the Rolls-Royce 20. The younger engineers at Rolls-Royce in Derby, who were more in tune with the expectations of growing numbers of owner-drivers, were unimpressed. Rolls engineer Bill Morton called it a gutless wonder, especially when laden with heavily closed bodywork. Others labelled it the shite hawk. This kind of talk infuriated Royce's managing director, Claude Johnson. In a memo following a board meeting in July 1922, he made his feelings clear. He said, the serpent of speed has entered into this company and is likely to poison his existence. Anyone encouraging in any way the making or selling of high compression cars will be regarded as an unfaithful servant of the company and his services will be dispensed with. I know that's sort of slightly off, off beam for me, but it, I think it's very telling about the time because it also shows in a way how Bentley had an intuitive sense of the times changing in a way that Rolls-Royce took a long time to catch up with because I then quote Osbert Sitwell, man of letters in the 1920s, read a lot of very kind of up there literary works, which I've certainly not ever read, but I couldn't help... Uh, loving this uh, paragraph of his. So if Rosbert Sitwell, son of a wealthy baronet, survivor of both Eton and Ypres, and just four years younger than W.O., the motor car promised something entirely new. Sitwell writes, mine was the first generation in which the young men were allowed to take their sweethearts for drives. They would sit together, the two of them, the man at the wheel, the girl beside him, their hair blown back from their temples, their features sculpted by the wind. There was an awareness of speed itself and the rapid thinking that must accompany it, a new alertness and typical effects, the sense of light, the sense it might be the racing of every machine as dusk approaches, all these physical impressions, so small in themselves, went to form a sum of feeling new in its kind and never before experienced. No other generation had been able to speed into the sunset. I'm not sure that it was a Bentley he was driving, but it was probably something very, very similar to that. And again, that's an example of what I'm trying to do by sort of setting a, giving a sense of the time that these guys were operating in. Um, Another of my favorite characters is Benjafield because Benjafield was a fine driver and a real stalwart um, who Bentley felt he could really rely on. But like, you know, one forgets that these guys were sort of, in many ways, amateurs. And certainly Benjafield, another man questing for adventure, was quite new to the game. And Benjafield himself writes about his first trial at Brooklands when Kensington Moyer invites him down to Brooklands to try out what they call the dirty little red car. This is the, this is the, um, the small red, it's actually EXP2, the second Bentley uh, ever made. And um, Benjafield describes the experience of being taken around the track. Moyer let in the clutch with a screech. The car started with such a jerk that my head and shoulders felt as if they were left astern. For the next eight minutes or so, all hell let loose. We darted out through the gate and joined the main circuit at the top of the finishing straight. Halfway round the home banking, down, we, down went his foot. And by the time of the end of the railway straight was reached, the rev counter was showing just under 3,700. The din was terrific and the bumping prodigious. The rush of air tore off my goggles and somehow the strap had slipped down and was round my throat and nearly throttling me. This diabolical state of affairs seemed to last for hours. But having completed two of the laps, he slowed down, turned into the finishing straight, and then returned to the paddock. Engine was switched off, and peace reigned again. 
trembling like an aspen, the feeling rather sick. I got out of the beastly thing. Never had I been so terrified. With a dirty cackle, Moya turned to me and said, how'd you like that, Doc? My knees were still feeling like limp jelly. I managed to articulate one word, fine. He then went on to buy that car and, and learned how to drive it rather successfully. Um, I'm going to read you uh, another little bit now because I've talked a lot about Bentley boys, but there are at least two very significant women in this story. One uh, was Dorothy Paget, um, without whom there would have been no supercharged Bentleys because she was the person who bankrolled Tim Birkin's dream of, of, of the blower Bentley, which, um, uh, as you may know, uh, W.O. Bentley abhorred superchargers. He thought they were dreadful things. And in some ways, in terms of Le Mans, he was, he was perhaps right. But um, Birkin, Birkin was very persuasive. Paget was very wealthy. And Bernardo thought it would be good fun for him to do it. So. So off they, went, they, they, off they went and did it. So, and I tell that story because um, Paget is, in her own way, an extraordinarily intriguing and complicated lady. But there is another person um, who always insisted on being known as Mrs. Victor Bruce, although nobody remembers Mr. Bruce. And in any way, she dumped him for someone else quite early on. But Mildred Victor Bruce uh, was somebody who just saw the car and just thought she wanted, which well, actually she was one of the first people, I think she possibly was the first woman in England ever to be convicted of speeding um, in her teens. But anyway, um, she developed a bit of an interest in endurance driving, uh, driving as fast as possible for as long as possible. And she'd done a model in an AC, uh, I think with her husband, and then decided that she wanted to have a go at driving for 24 hours on her own. And she decided the only thing, and she wanted to try and do 100 miles an hour, 24 hours, and then the only car suitable for that was the Bentley, which she'd never driven. And I describe how she went to Cricklewood and just basically said to W.O., could you possibly lend me a car? I want to do this, and I want to do it next week. And then somehow he just said yes. Anyway. Once she got to Paris, uh, before she arrived at Montlhery, and before she'd even driven the Bentley, she wrote to her mother, who she hadn't mentioned she was doing this. Dear Mama, I'm over in Paris just to make an attempt on the 24-hour record. I hope to drive the whole time myself and cover the about 2,000 miles in 24 hours. If you buy Friday and Saturday's daily sketch, you'll be able to read about it. Expect to be back in England on Sunday. <laughs> and she did it. <laughs> um, now, I'm just going to finish off, actually, with a Leslie Pennell, the uh, mechanic I told you about. The, the demise of Bentley Motors is a complicated business. And um, it, it's, it's very poignant in lots of ways, not least because you know, the, the, people who, the, the people who worked at Cricklewood just loved what they did. They absolutely loved what they did. And, and they were in sort of shock when Rolls-Royce took over. Not least because Rolls-Royce effectively kind of sold off and broke up whatever was left. And it almost kind of erased, erased it from, from the landscape. And obviously reinvented Bentley as a, as a mark two years later with the silent sports car. But essentially the, there was nothing that the two had in common. And I come back to WO and Pennell because I feel that no one sums up the unique experience that they shared better than Leslie Pennell, who was there at the birth of the very first Bentley. He said, to, he said, he said um, we were working for WO and for the car. The car was WO, and WO was the car. To us, they were one. And I always find it's quite hard to read that out loud without a lump in my throat, because it's such a sort of, you know, it's just sort of profound and clear um, and thoughtful uh, thing to say. I was very, very lucky, very lucky that, we're all very lucky actually, that in about 1960, a woman called uh, Elizabeth Nagel sat down with a few of the original Bentley boys and turned on her tape recorder and recorded, they just let rip. 
and she turned this into a book called The Other Bengali Boys, which I commend to you. Find it on eBay for about 15 pounds. It's an amazing read because Pennell and uh, Hassan and Clark and one or two others just, just talk about the times. And it's so rare in automotive archive to find people just letting rip about, about their times. So I hope I've done justice to the Benley era. It's, it's, a, it's, it's been a bit scary because, you know, much is known and there are, it's a revered brand and a lot of people know a lot of things about these guys. Um, but I hope that what I'm going to do here is take the story out to a, to a wider audience. That's my mission. And thank you very much for listening to me. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Grimsdale. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, now, we're going to try and do a quick Q&A, which probably, whether it will work or not, I don't know. I've been told to stand here, so... Yeah, don't tread on my car. I won't tell, tread on your cars. Um, we're not supposed to pass the microphone around, so I will wander amongst you and uh, take your questions. If there is anyone that has a question for Peter. We'll probably hear uh, Mr. Cropley, sir. Well, it's everyone else here, so tell me what, or is it long-winded? No, I just want to know what Peter's, this was entirely done during lockdown, I want to know what his life was like during lockdown. <laughs> how, did, you know, how much, how long did it take, how long sure, did it Sure, sure. Did you, you manage to get that? Thank you, sir. Yeah, I did, thank you. Um, good question. Well, I just, um, I, I, just, I just paid my life membership of the W.O. Bentley Memorial Foundation, uh, in order to access their archive when lockdown happened, so I only went there for one morning. Um, I, I started in earnest uh, just as lockdown was happening, so, so May, April last year. Um, and I couldn't go to the British Library, I couldn't go to any other archives, so I just bought everything I could lay my hands on. I just bought a vast, vast library, which I then sold, um, and I, I just excavated the internet um, long ago, and also eBay, which is fantastic. Lots of our magazines, journals, all kinds of things people have got. Um, I had tremendous luck because as I, say, I found Robert Benjafield and he had lots of papers uh, that, his, that his grandfather had, um, had left behind him. I also um, tracked down Wolf Bonato's grandson, uh, Daniel Walker, who was very helpful, but I couldn't go and see, I couldn't go and see these guys. Um, I just had to sort of chat to them and get what I could off them, but they were, they were amazing and very supportive. So I wrote, I basically wrote the bulk of it between March and September last year. Um, it's kind of the way I work, I just get, get down to it really. Um, but as I say, it had to, you know, I did start in 1967. <laughs> you were just waiting. Um, in hindsight, was lockdown a bonus? Did it focus you on...? Not, not really, because I, I, I think it was frustrating, because mm. I'd like to... Have, I think the worst thing was not being able to just go and hang out in the Bentley archive, because what I wanted to do was go through all the Bentley magazines, the Bentley, the Bentley Drivers Club, the Bentley Reviews, because going way back, there's all kinds of odd little snippets in there, you know, that, that you would never get in a book or anybody else would have picked up on. Odd little slightly arcane details, which I was... I, I love all that kind of material. And I, I couldn't get to that, so, you know, but I just counted my blessings last year. God, so many people were in much different... Absolutely. My life in lockdown wasn't an awful lot different from when I was writing High Performance. So it was just like, you know, wake up, eat, go upstairs, come downstairs, you know, write, eat, write, eat, sleep, you know. Perhaps your wife would like to comment on yes. that. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, a gentleman in the front row, you've got a question, sir? Andrew Nahum. Peter, thank you for bringing all these stories together in such an engrossing way. Um, what, what I often wonder was, why did Bernardo, who, as you point out, could afford anything, finally cut the cord and let the Bentley company go? Oh, that's a good question. Um, can I just uh, say, welcome Andrew Nahum, who has given me enormous amount of help. Um, I, I, I was helped by a number of people who advised me, and what Andrew doesn't know about rotary engines um, aero engines isn't worth knowing. He, he helped me enormously and guided me and read, read through my materials to make sure that I got the, techie, the, te the, the technology right. Um, I think that Bonato cut the cord because in the summer of 1930, 
they had no idea how bad the Wall Street crash was going to be. I think that he, they, he, and his, he and his financial advisors probably thought the sky was falling in, and they had, they had probably bigger worries than the fate of Bentley Motors. You've got to remember that Carruth, who was um, one of Bentley's, uh, of Bernato's money men, I mean, Bernato was a wonderful man. He had these very tough guys around him who, who guarded his fortune very carefully. Um, and Carruth never really got Bentley, Bentley Motors. Um, and I think that they, you know, as soon as, um, and, and, and it was a, it, it was a kind of toy for Bernardo. I mean, he took it very seriously. You know, no, there's no question about that. And he, he was forever, a bit, you know, as a bit of a Bentley boy. And let's face it, he won Le Mans three times mm. in a row. And nobody did that until, anybody like to say? Yeah. Someone will. 1960, Oliver, his name begins with G. Anyway, never mind. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. 60, 61, 62, which is an amazing achievement for a, a fairly amateur sort of racing driver. But I think that's the other, I think that, I think he had, they all had bigger problems then. They didn't know how it was gonna play out. Um, and you know, it never, you know, it's so sad because just that year, Bentley had finally got his machine shop you know, he may be making these cars all these. He didn't really have a proper machine shop. Only finally then. Uh -huh. Good. Any, uh, another question? Yes, Steve. Peter, do you, do you believe that W.O. ever, he, he, he portrayed, I, I read the book and I really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. Because as I said to you, he brings the characters to a lot. I know all these names from many years, I guess, but now I feel I understand who they were and what they were like because Great. of your book. Thank you. But the, the thing I, uh, W.O. comes across as a, as a pretty tortured soul, you know, yes. a man. Yes. Did, did, do you believe he ever achieved sort of fulfillment? Did he? Oh, gosh, you know what? Do, do, you know, do you know those people you meet that enough is never quite good enough? I think there was a bit of that. I think he could have, been, I think he perhaps he could have been a bit of a misery. It's like, oh, for God's sake, you just won again. Come on, let's celebrate. No, 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 I must get back. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. I don't really want to. You know, I don't think he was comfortable in celebrating. He was, he was the polar opposite of, I've been script, I've been sort of drafting a sort of, you know, if there was a feature film, what would it be? And I think the feature film of this story is it could be any number of things, but I think it's probably some sort of chariots and fire on wheels. It's Bernardo and, and Bentley. It's two polar opposites and how they work together and create something really special. I think he was, and I mean, he, he was always he was always very serious and earnest. You know, as a young boy, he was he was the youngest. He was very serious. He was very fierce, very committed. Um, I think the I think probably the the if the loss of his first wife Leonie had a terrible pay, took a terrible toll. But you just didn't talk about things like that back then. Um, and I think he 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 made a. He made the wrong. He married a bit on the rebound. His second wife was a party animal who certainly was never going to sit on an oil drum with a stopwatch in a round of day. Um, and and actually, I think, and this is frustrating because I know it's probably somewhere in the Bentley reviews, is I think his third, he met his third wife through his second wife, who was a very a very very supportive woman and liked nothing better than go off on a very very long drive, which is basically what Bentley liked to do most in the world. Um. <laughs> okay, and I was going to say, any other questions from the floor while I'm... Yeah, you would, sir. Okay. There we go. Just... Can I just ask, who do you think would be the, the readership of your new book? Well, my hope is that it's the sort of people who... You know, people who like Ben McIntyre and Max Hastings and... Um, you know, Dominic Sandbrook. Uh, that's my aspiration. You know, that, that I would like to feel like I'm, you know, this is social history with cars. That's what I like to feel. But I don't want to leave the enthusiasts behind. I had a, I had a slightly negative experience. When I was at the BBC, my first big TV series was a, a, film, a series called Locomotion. And it was about the world the railways made. And uh, the idea was to show how railways changed the world. And it fell very neatly and very hard between two stools. The railway enthusiasts were very disappointed because there wasn't nearly enough engine, trains in it. And the other people just never came because they thought it was a, 
you know, another of these programs about railways. And so I was mindful of that, particularly with High Performance, my previous book, that I wouldn't make the same mistake. And, and hap happily, I didn't, because I think, I think it, it, I'm kind of buoyed by the previous book because that sort of seemed to work for people. You know, I don't know much about cars. My dad had a Hillman Imp. You know, I noticed you didn't mention it, but I really enjoyed reading it, sort of thing. Well, that's the kind of result. You know, that, that was a kind of good result for me. So. I guess I, my aspiration is for, is for that, that great group of men and women out there who enjoy British social history and social history. Maybe one more question, Mr. Cropley, sir. Now you go first before you forget. Was the third wife called Margaret? Yes, yes. Margaret, there are various interviews with Margaret around the place. Yes, there? there are. I remember yes. Steady Barker knew her. Yes, yes. And he wrote about her a lot. Yeah, this is the, this is the you know, that's slightly frustrating, but, but you know what? I could have written a book twice as big as that, you know, still wouldn't have covered it. Philip. Yeah, this is not a question, it's actually a, a remark. I had the great honor of knowing both Wally Hassan and Billy Rockall. Billy Rockall was an important part of the race team for Bentley Motors. He built all the engines, never had an engine failure. And Billy Rockall told me when I was taking him up to Blakely one time to celebrate Birkin, that he couldn't wait to get back to the factory every morning, which was a, a cycle ride away, about two miles it, from Kingsbury to Cricklewood. And he said he used to lay in bed at night, working out tomorrow's problems to get that engine to go a bit faster. And he absolutely loved working for the company, and he adored Bentley, his boss, and he said that he uh, just engendered huge loyalty. And the strange thing is, I got nearly the same remarks out of Wally Hassan, who went on to great things, as you know. Yes. And uh, he said that it was the foundation, his time at Bentley Motors was the foundation for the whole of the rest of his life, really. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when he made the Bernardo Hassan, which has raced successfully mm. here, he did a very interesting thing. He put a radiator grill on it, which was an oval with vertical slats. And if you look at the Jaguar that he was involved in in the early 1950s, mm. vertical radiator, DNA, yes. vertical slats. Yes. So the theme carried on mm. through the, the mm. uh, uh, top of the engine design yep. of the Jaguar, yep. very mm -hmm. similar to what he'd been working on at Bentley. And I think, the, I think that's, very, that's very interesting. I did, and I didn't know that about Billy Rockwell. I think that's very interesting because, in a way, I think you can, I mean, you can get carried away with the influence of Bentley Motors. But I sort of think that you know, one of the reasons why we've got Formula One is you know, why Britain is the kind of world capital of Formula One is, is this is kind of a, the state that in, inside Bentley Motors, a state of permanent innovation. None of the cars are the same. They're always slightly different, moving on, moving on, always tweaking, 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 which of course is anathema mass production. You know, you cannot do that in mass production. But if you get the number of marks of spin, were, you know. 23 or 24, whatever, never stopped, never stopped. And there was that, that sense in, in that, that, that particular facility, you know, kind of came into its own after the Second World War with, with, with the rise of British, you know, Brit, the Brits at Formula One, because no, other, no others did that. And it is something in the DNA. And I think I, think I was just stress about Bentley Motors is it was this unique thing where class divisions just evaporated. I mean, yes, they slept in different hotels at Le Mans and, you know, sure, let's not get too carried away, but something happened. There's an amazing moment where Pennell, I mean, Pennell describes this, um, where they're preparing the car for, I think it's they're preparing the 1924 car and the scrutineers have said that the mud guards have got to be a quarter of an inch wider. So Pennell is there at three o'clock in the morning widening the mud guards and he's on his own. And he notices somebody, he's, is there in the background, just like watching him. And W.O. has one of his moments where he says, oh, I'm not sure we should be doing this. He has a complete moment of self-doubt. And Pennell's there, you know, Pennell is, you know, Pennell is just a barely out of school, but he loses it. He just turns around and says, what would I say? What would I say to them back in, back in Cricklewood that we didn't, we didn't race? What would I say? And Bentley just sort of melted back into the shadows. Said, you know, it was just like an incredible moment, and you know, things like that happened. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Grimshead. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, before we finish, Peter, um, I'd like to present you this is a genuine piece of 1907 track. Oh my god. Okay. Wow. Um, it has been cut and slightly polished. Okay. Hold oh, 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 on. Give me. <laughs> Um, 
it's yours. Thank you for this oh, evening. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you.